This is a CBC Podcast. Whenever we hang out, me and my friends love to argue about that really important scientific questions. Is cereal a soup? Yes, That's cereal a is a soup. If it's using powdered milk, yes, the water has no, no, to be no. boiled at some point. Cereal is not soup. Cereal is a different category. If you pour cereal soup. into tea, that is soup. Your description of soup is wrong. Okay, because here's for my... you, if you were to make cold cereal, that is not soup. If you boil it, tea oh. is broth. We still haven't come up with a definitive answer, and we've been debating this for months. But, of course, for the record, cereal is 100% a soup. And I hope you guys are all on my side about that. Here's another one we've been fighting over. Do crabs think fish can fly? No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably. What? The crab thinks, wow, that fish can float and I'm confined to the ground. I think if we're being, like, scientific here, I don't think crabs could think a thought that complex. Yes. But, like, what if birds can just air swim? They're swimming in a fluid. They're more kind of, like, gliding, though. Okay, that is kind of silly. But here's the real question that I wanted to ask. Would you rather travel to outer space or the deep ocean? Outer Outer space. space. Well, no, the ocean, because it has more life. But yes, but at the same time, outer space is so vast. Like, you could just go anywhere. The ocean still has limits. True, but... Also, it just looks really gross. Like, dead whales being eaten. You know, I wouldn't want to go that far down. Like, just kind of, like, cruising under the water. Wouldn't it be, like, dark? Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, in space, there's so many different <coughs> galaxies. There are so many different possibilities. And in yeah. the ocean, we have a general idea of what's there. But in space, like, we have no idea what could be in, like, the other well, I mean, galaxies. I it's pretty likely there's aliens. So, I agree that meeting aliens would be really cool. But the truth is, scientists actually know more about space than what's in the water of our very own planet. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely adore space. But the deep sea kind of has all those same elements, you know? Mysterious creatures? Check. Alien environments? Check. Hard to get to? Definite check. So I think the problem is there's just so much that we don't know about the ocean that we just kind of forget about it. I feel like it has this reputation that When you get deep enough, it's just this empty, dark wasteland where nothing can really live. But is the deep sea really like this creepy, empty space? What is at the bottom of the ocean? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are just so many good questions out there that we really want to have answered. Where is the internet? How else can we power the planet? What's the deal with screen time? How is the universe going to end? Why are viruses so good at what they do? And what's at the bottom of the ocean? Would you want to see the bottom of the ocean? Definitely. If I go to depths that haven't been explored before, that could be cool. Even though I'm little, it'd be cool to see, like, glowing plants and stuff. And it'd be cool to be, like, one of the first people to ever go that deep. I could find treasure, you know? That could be nice. Now, what do you think you'd see down there? 
if we're in the pitch black zone, but we're not, we're close to how deep we want to be, but we're not there yet, I don't think we'd see anything. But I think if we got to the ocean floor, we would see nothing, and then we'd go around and we start noticing stuff and then our eyes were kind of like our pupils would kind of like dilate properly and we'd see tons of like plant life and stuff or it could be absolutely horrible with massive animals thrashing you around and then you'd be stuck down there okay so in order to get to the bottom of this pun intended I had to find someone who's actually seen the bottom of the ocean, and I found just the person. I, I love the deep sea. It is mysterious, and it's deep, and it's so different from anything else that we have experienced. That's Verena Tunnicliffe. She's a marine biologist with the University of Victoria, and she knows better than anyone about what it's like down there, because she's spent decades studying what lives in the deep. So, I got her to describe for me what it's like down there when you land a submersible on the edge of an abyss. You're looking at what appears to be an alien landscape. You're, you're looking out using your lights, and you can only see as far as your lights can go. And you might see suddenly little things jumping in the water, like little water fleas. And then you get these bizarre sponges that form. It looks like something out of Dr. Seuss. They have these little bubbles all over the top, white, brilliant white. And if you touch them, they shatter. Yet these are animals. Then a gigantic jelly will float by, and it's got tendrils that are maybe 10 meters long. And these are killing machines. And then you might begin to realize that in the sediment there's all sorts of holes and then a little tentacle coming out of the seafloor. Giant sea acorn, they're called acorn worms, and you'll suddenly see one of these things and it's two meters long, it's bright purple. And then you try to look it up when you get back to the surface and find that somebody's only ever seen this once or twice before. So we're always looking at each other saying, what's that? Wow, that's, that's really cool. As you can tell, Verena has spent a lot of time in submersibles, exploring the water thousands of meters deep. And her lab has discovered over a hundred new species, and nine of them are even named after her. That is really cool. In fact, just before I got her on the phone, she's pretty sure she discovered yet another new species. You know, before this call, I was just in my lab looking down my microscope, looking at a worm, and it's only about a centimeter and a half long, but I'm pretty sure it's not described. Now, the trick is to find the expert in the world who can now take that and fit it into our knowledge of what the tree of life looks like. Yeah, they'll find where it fits in the puzzle. That's right. That's so cool. Do you have a favorite yourself? I like the spiders. Oh, they're sea spiders. <laughs> they're sea spiders, yes. They, they come in all sizes and shapes, but they still have eight legs. Oh, they might be 30 centimeters across and about 20 centimeters high, so they're pretty big. <laughs> and they've got this long nose, kind of hairy on the outside, looking a little bit like a tarantula. 
but I actually think they're kind of cute. Oh. They uh, live by sucking the juices out of anemones, kind of like a mosquito. Oh, that's, that's a lot to take in. I mean, I'm a little bit scared of the mosquito spiders because that's kind of like the fusion of the two freakiest things we have on land. Yes, yes. I, I mean, we do have our nightmares, but it's always interesting to ask these things, how they make a living, you know, what's important to them. <laughs> At least they're four kilometers down. I, I don't think that. they're coming after us. Not yet, anyway. Even though some of them are really freaky, it's cool to think that there are so many animals down there to discover. I mean, it really isn't a dead zone in the slightest. I think that the reason people think it's a dead zone is just because there's no sunlight way down there. Up here on the surface, we know that life is based off of sunlight and photosynthesis and all that stuff. Our plant friends all suck up sun energy and we eat that and they get that good energy and that's what makes me grow and that's what makes everyone else grow. But down in the deeps, there is no light. However, Verena says there is heat. So there's this whole line of volcanoes, and some of them are actively erupting. We've been there when the volcano has erupted right in front of us. What? I never pictured the bottom of the ocean to be this explosive place filled with active volcanoes. And just in case you were worried, Verena wasn't physically beside the volcano. She was up above it on a ship. But her submersible video camera was watching the lava being pushed out with the gases and rocks flying out. The rocks were landing on the submersible and then all of a sudden the edge of the the eruption pit gave away and the sub started sliding down so we had to pull it off the ground. But it was a fantastic event. But you know what was really neat is as we turned away from it, we realized there's tons of animals that live on these hot fluid around these vents and volcanoes. Okay, I'm sorry. So you mentioned how things are alive, but you talk about these, you know, it's dark, it's deep, and there's these hot, like, geysers of water and these massive volcanoes, and these animals are just, like, chilling a couple feet away from it? Uh, yes, and they are actually chilling because... Heat doesn't travel far in water, so unless they make a mistake, which some of them do, they don't enter the really hot water. But what these animals are after, there are very special microbes that love this place. And what they do is they use the chemical energy in that water to make organic carbon. So it's just like photosynthesis in plants, but it's called chemosynthesis in these microbes. And so there are a whole bunch of animals at hydrothermal vents all over the world that have evolved to live in those nasty conditions, nasty gases. I mean, hydrogen sulfide is, is a toxin. And they've evolved to cope with those conditions so they can access the food. Can you imagine life for these little guys just living next to these explosive vents, munching and crunching away on the toxic material shooting out? That's pretty cool. But hydrothermal vents aren't everywhere on the bottom of the ocean, so in areas where there aren't just toxic sludge shooting out all the time, what do the animals eat? 
all of the life in the deep ocean, in the midnight zone of the ocean, that's not dependent on a hydrothermal vent is reliant on the material that falls out of the upper ocean. This is oceanographer Melissa Omond. She spends her time exploring the area of the ocean called the Twilight Zone, which is just below the sunlit layer, but not quite in the, like, deep, dark bottom level. So you're an oceanographer. Mm-hmm. Tell me what it's like to go in this crazy submersible deep into the ocean. <laughs> yeah, so I actually have never been in a submersible. What I do is I build little robots that go down to depths and basically discover things for me. Oh my god, that's actually so much cooler. Can you <laughs> tell me about these robots then? Sure. So they are little robots we call minions, and they uh, drop down. We drop them off of a research vessel, and they sink down to what we call the twilight zone, and they take photographs of the marine snow that sink down from that top layer, and they also have sensors on them, so they measure the temperature and the pressure of the water at that depth. Oh yeah, you heard right. She said marine snow. And no, it's not the same stuff up here that you make snowballs with. Marine snow can be anything from dead plants to whale poop. It's just organic matter that slowly falls from the surface of the ocean and eventually lands on the seafloor. Sometimes it can take weeks to make that trip, and most of it gets eaten on the trip down, but just enough of it makes it to the bottom that it covers about three quarters of the seafloor. It's like snow that just won't melt. And there's still a lot to learn about its journey and what's eating it, which is why Melissa has these robots. So you called the minions, and unfortunately because you did so, I can now only picture the little yellow things from Despicable Me. Can you describe what they actually look like? Well, they are... A you know, kind of disturbingly similarly shaped to the minions from Despicable Me. They're like cylindrical shaped and they've got a round head just like the minions from the movie. They're made out of glass, so that makes them look pretty different. They're actually transparent, so you can see through them except for the electronics and the batteries inside. She's only sent a few of these minions out so far on test runs, but the goal is to send out swarms of them to cover these huge areas in the twilight zone. But the only hitch is it's kind of hard to get these guys to the exact right depth. If they're too light, they'll just float on the surface, and too heavy, they'll just plop right onto the bottom. It's it's really, it's it's actually surprisingly tricky. Like, that was part that caused us to lose our very first minion that we put in the water. We didn't add quite enough weight at first, and so the minion didn't sink because it had little tiny air bubbles just stuck on the outside of it. And just that tiny amount of extra air was enough that it couldn't get all the way down to the depth that we wanted, and it just stayed at the top. And so we ended up solving that problem by taking a Lifesaver candy and stringing an extra little bit of weight onto a Lifesaver candy and then hanging that on the Minion. Uh, some other oceanographers before me had discovered that Lifesaver candies dissolve in seawater after 20 minutes. And so that was like the perfect amount of time to have that extra bit of weight basically pull the Minion through the surface 
and then drop off at its target depth. That is the best thing I've heard all year. Like that is absolutely wonderful. You get lifesaver candies. Like how does someone just <laughs> look at the candy and just go, let's just slap that on a minion. I would love to know the answer to that. I wasn't there when whoever it was figured this out, but I am so grateful to them because it's such a fabulous, very low tech, very inexpensive solution and it worked great. And you know, if you have a couple extra lifesavers, you can just, you know, put, put them in your mouth, see if they dissolve, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I love picturing this massive swarm of these little swimming robots with little lifesavers attached to them in the giant expanse of the ocean. That's just, it's just hilarious to me. And, I mean, I know Keen really wants to be an underwater explorer, and the more I'm learning about it, I want to go down too. But Melissa says it's more likely to be a minion than a guy like me. I think it's definitely the future of ocean exploration is to have more and more of these autonomous robots throughout the ocean to begin to address this huge challenge of just how expansive the ocean is and how challenging it is to get measurements from all ocean depths. So Verena and Melissa spend a lot of time looking at the deep sea, getting measurements and spying on animals. But there is another way to explore the ocean, and that's with our ears. Well, you know, light can't penetrate very far un underwater, but that's not the case for sound. Sound waves can pr propagate almost limitlessly throughout the world's oceans. As you can imagine, many marine animals use sound to orient, navigate uh, their environment, as well as find food. So sound is kind of a cr critical component of the ocean that these animals use to survive. That's Bob Ziak. He's a research oceanographer with NOAA. That's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is kind of like the NASA of the ocean. His specialty is ocean acoustics, so basically listening in on the sounds that travel through the water. By studying the kind of the ambient soundscape and what normal sound is like in the ocean, we can then see how perhaps human-made sound comes into play and how that might affect marine ecosystems and might affect their, um, you know, their health and stability. Bob and his colleagues wanted to listen in on the deepest part of the ocean, a place 11 kilometers down called the Challenger Deep. It's part of the Mariana Trench, which is kind of like the Grand Canyon, but going down from the sea floor. So we wanted to test that idea and see if it was really one of the quietest environments on the planet. And we used a special uh, hydrophone, you know, which is an underwater microphone, but we built it so it could withstand the extreme pressures at those depths. Uh, you know, 11 kilometers underwater is equivalent to like 16,000 pounds per square inch of pressure. So it's, it really has to be a really strong system to survive that. Um, so that's how we did. We just went with a ship over to the site and we put this anchor with a hydrophone and a float on it and the anchor took the hydrophone down to the bottom of the seafloor. It took six hours to get there. It was a really long, slow descent, but uh, it got to the bottom of Challenger Deep and made its recordings and lasted for about three weeks. Bob was expecting it to be super quiet, but instead he heard things like this. 
baleen whales, dolphins, dolphin clicks as well. I do like the baleen whales, you know, they're, they're kind of little moans. And I do like the, the dolphin clicks. I'm a geophysicist, so I like earthquakes. And that zone there at Challenger Deep had lots and lots of earthquakes while we were recording. Yeah, I think several hundred. When the earthquakes get really big, um, it can be uh, really dramatic. So, earthquakes I can understand. Whales and dolphins swimming way overhead, that's impressive, but it kind of makes sense. But Bob's recorders also heard this. Those are ships, on the surface, 11 kilometers away. So we thought it would be acoustically isolated there, but actually it wasn't. Uh, there's a lot of surface ships and a lot of... Uh, sonar activity around the area, so it ended up being a lot more human-made noise than we expected. We could hear the propeller noise just like it was right there. It really was surprising how it was able to be that crystal clear was, was pretty amazing. So if the animals down there do know that we exist, they're probably not super happy with us. The you know, thought is that ocean noise is, is increasing globally in the last 30 years, and that has been thought to be due to ship, increased ship activity worldwide. We're really kind of at the beginning of kind of quantifying what would you call, quote, normal sound is in the oceans. So then as sound changes in the future, or if it does change, we would have an idea of what's going on, why it's changing and how, it, how much it has. And our one thought is that, you know, as, as climate change is, is taking hold, um, ocean temperatures are warming and, and ice at the poles is breaking up. So all that kind of adds up to bigger storms and, and ice noise, and that actually makes it for a noisier ocean. The noisy ocean is probably not a really great place for animals that use noise to survive. Humans can really be the worst. Here we are just starting to learn more about these incredible underwater creatures, and it turns out we've already been ruining their lives with our noise pollution. Maybe we need to give them a bit more consideration, you know? I mean, don't get me wrong, I love space and I still want to meet an alien, but I also think that we should pay closer attention to our own planet. and study our ocean so we can take better care of it and the weird, wacky things that call it home. Yes, even the mosquito spiders. We can never understand everything, but we do have to learn to appreciate how we are connected to that deep ocean, which through many means is nourishing us by keeping this whole cycle going on this planet. Wow, that's, I mean, that's an amazingly poetic way to end this. Thank you so much. I'll leave you to in discover a new species, I guess. <laughs> well, I've got an exciting afternoon in front of me. Now, I have one more big question that this is all leading up to, my magnum opus. All right. Do crabs think fish can fly? 
<laughs> From a crab's perspective, they're definitely flying overhead. I would think that crabs do think fish fly. Poor crabs. <laughs> I feel for them. But they, have, they seem like they have a pretty good life, too. There's a lot of them, around us at least, out here. <laughs> they seem pretty happy. Ty asked why. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Ty Pool. This show is produced by Amanda Buckowitz and Judy D. Gu. Judy's also our digital producer. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons, and she is also our editor and sound designer. The theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is my dad, Min Nguyen, and our location manager is my mom, Nikki Poole. Thanks, guys, for all that you do. Today, my guests were Verena Tunnicliffe, Melissa Omond, and Bob Ziak. Special thanks go out to Austin Pomeroy for his recording help, Kian for sharing his thoughts, and my friends Zoe, Piper, Finn, and Caden for dealing with my wacky questions all the time. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.